Edward Thomas spent the day before he died under particularly heavy bombardment. The shell that fell two yards from where he stood should have killed him, but instead it was a rare dud. Back at Billet, the men teased him on his lucky escape. Someone remarked that a fellow with Thomas's luck should be safe wherever he went. The next morning was the first of the Arras offensive. Easter Monday dawned cold and wintry. The infantry in the trenches fixed their bayonets and tightened their grip around their rifles. Behind them, the artillery made their final preparation to the loading and the fusing of the shells. Thomas had started late to the observation post. He had not rung through his arrival when the bombardment began. The Allied assault was so immense that some Germans were captured half-dressed. Others didn't have time to put on their boots and fled barefoot through the mud and the snow. British troops sang and danced in what only a few hours before had been no man's land. Edward Thomas left the dugout behind his post and leaned into the opening to take a moment to fill his pipe. A shell passed so close to him that the blast of air stopped his heart. He fell without a mark on his body. This and all other episodes of Bloody Violent History are available on Amazon Music Podcasts. You can find the link on our website and in the show notes. Hello, my name is Tom Ashton and his name is James Jackson and this is Bloody Violent History. In the past few months, since the start of the Ukrainian-Russian war, we've been hearing more and more about military equipment. At the start it was handheld weapons, often for attacking armoured vehicles, tanks, helicopters and even some fighter jets. That was in the late spring. The Russian assault on Kyiv stalled, decapitated tank hulks littered the roads to the Ukrainian capital and the Russians withdrew and focused their attention on the east and south of Ukraine. And suddenly the Salumbar chat is all about artillery. Even the ancient Greeks knew it. If you want to win a war, be ready to throw heavy objects at your enemies. So clap on your tin helmet, hop into your foxhole and settle down to our thoughts on the ballista, the trebuchet, the mortar, the cannon and the howitzer. Artillery, a key ingredient in the art of war. Jamie, before we dive into the history, tell me what's happening today in Ukraine with regard to artillery. Well, in regard to artillery, I think what we've learned is that no weapon system, whether it's rocketry or shells, is going to be a remedy for poor leadership, poor tactics, poor strategy, lack of punch, and a crumbling of offensive capability. The Russians haven't managed to reconstitute their forces decently. They haven't managed to deploy them decently. They've lost momentum. And they're pretty soon going to be on the defensive. So artillery alone, the the creeping barrage that the Russians have begun to concentrate on, in itself is not enough. But it's a typical example of how the Russians use artillery, going back to the Second World War. And they haven't adapted their tactics to include anything else. So on its own, it's not enough. But artillery has had a huge impact on on both modern and ancient warfare. And their creeping barrage, as it's described to us in the press, in the news, is followed by very tentative manoeuvre of the infantry, it seems, rather than, you know, a punching through. It has to be tentative because they've lost so many armoured vehicles, so they're keeping those back. Whatever they do, the creeping barrage is is not enough, and the Ukrainians adapt to that. In terms of the amount of artillery, it's interesting to see that the Russians have dropped down from their typical 12,000 a day. I mean, in some cases, they've got up to 20,000 rounds a day fired, but they're dropping dramatically from 12,000, whereas the Ukrainians have gone from 1,000 a day up to about 6,000 a day and managed to change the calibre of their weapons to NATO standard, to 155 millimetres. So they've done all that in the middle of war and they managed to strike back. Do you think there'll be a moment when they reach parity? That's difficult to say. I mean, in terms of the the, the sort of 
amount of artillery and storage. I mean, numbers are sprayed around like confetti, like like Russian artillery fire. I mean, some say that the, the Russians have six and a half thousand self-propelled artillery, seven and a half thousand towed artillery. Actually, what's operational is a fraction of that. It's probably about two and a half thousand pieces overall. And a lot of those pieces have been taken out in Ukraine. The number of Ukrainian artillery pieces, NATO standard, are going up all the time. They've been supplied with César French, um, about 18 of those self-propelled guns. They've been supplied with PZH-2000, a brilliant German weapon that can fire 10 rounds a minute. They've been supplied with M109 uh, American self-propelled guns. So they're beginning to get better equipped, better organised, and they have uh, radar that can spot incoming and uh, allow the Ukrainians to target precisely uh, the, the Russian guns. And of course, they've uh, also started receiving the HIMARS and the MLRS rocketry systems. Yes, so they can go deep. They can take out fuel depots, ammo depots, uh, railheads, concentrated forces. So that's having a huge impact and taking out bridges and, and other supply routes into the Kherson region. So that's been a huge change for the Ukrainians and for the way the Ukrainians are going to attempt their counteroffensives. You also have the issue that howitzers tend to get hot when they're fired. So all you have to do is send up drones with thermal images at night and you've got a Christmas tree laid out for you. So the Ukrainians have been decimating uh, the Russian artillery capability and th that is what the Russians have been depending on. So the, the weaknesses of Russian strategy and tactics have been shown up for all to see. OK, Jamie, well, let's step back in time. And in fact, artillery even gets a mention of sorts in the Old Testament with the quote, engines invented by cunning men to shoot arrows and great stones. But of course, uh, these weapons are more known to us uh, from the time of uh, the Greeks and the campaigns of Alexander the Great and his father. And even just before then, I mean, Dionysus the Elder, the tyrant of Syracuse, was using artillery to, to take out enemies from Carthage to Sicily. So he certainly used those. And Philip of Macedonia and his son Alexander the Great were great users of artillery on the battlefield. In 329 BC at the Battle of Jaxartus, the commander Alexander the Great used artillery fantastically to drive enemy bowmen, the, the Sarka, away from the other banks of the river so that his men could get across and, and move on the enemy immediately. So this was a perfect use, tactical use of artillery to, to gain the advantage. And Alexander won the day. He, he, he was an innovator and, and knew how to use uh, Lithobolos, the catapults that hurl stones and these were heavy stones and also oxybel catapults torsion artillery that fired arrows and this was something the like romans bolts. like bolts and this was something that the romans took on later on both the greeks and the romans were not averse to using fire as well so they rained down absolute carnage down on the enemy and it, it made a difference. And once it made a difference, it was adopted by others. And the extraordinary thing was that this battle of Alexander the Great's Jakartis was on the borders of Uzbekistan. So he'd carted this equipment for thousands of miles. Yes, and as you see later on with the Romans, they, they had small aversions. I mean, the arrow bolt uh, devices that the Romans used. They even had one called the Scorpio, which was operated by one man. It was two metres long and could fire bolts at the enemy. So it was really the precursor to the crossbow of the Middle Ages. So artillery was was in huge demand on the battlefield from that moment on. Well, that's the Greeks, but the Romans were masters at this sort of uh, activity on the battlefield. You might remember... 
when uh, Russell Crowe, the leader of the, the Roman assault, instructs his men to unleash hell, which um, I think actually was unleash his dog called hell. But anyway... <laughs> The you battlefield could, hell was unleashed at the you, same time. You, you, you could unleash Maggie or Lurcher, Tom. Her, her breath, that's biological warfare. <laughs> that's, that's, that, that's, uh, is it libel or slander? I think that's probably slander. <laughs> it's banned under the Geneva Convention. <laughs> her breath. Yeah. But, but talking of unleashing hell, the, the Romans certainly took artillery around the world and used it very effectively, just like Alexander the Great. If Alexander could take uh, his artillery to Uzbekistan, sent to Central Asia, um, in AD 43, Claudius sent his forces to pacify southern England, and they certainly cowed 11 tribes, English tribes, into surrendering. And if you go around Salisbury Plain and Wiltshire today, you see Iron Age forts that were all taken out by the Roman legions and what they did was simply use uh, catapults to fire boulders and fire into the Iron Age forts and take out all the buildings there and pretty soon uh, those tribes surrendered they weren't they had no answer to Roman tactics Roman cavalry Roman artillery but it was this combined use of arms that won the day for the for the Romans and a new technology. I mean, we'll see that later on, won't we? With the uh, you know princes in in or the king in England uh, being able to subdue his barons who are, who could lock themselves up in their castles until cannon came along, and then they could just be knocked out of their castles by yes, the use of cannon. The, the, the psychological effect, both the deterrent effect and the psychological effect of being better armed was vast. The use of artillery was not over in places like Britain. If you look at Galilee and the, the Jewish revolts and uprisings against Roman rule in 67 AD, you had Vespasian going in hard at places like the Siege of Jophad, where he used 160 artillery pieces. And there are eyewitness accounts of that campaign, a lot of them written really by Josephus, who had been defeated by Vespasian, but the descriptions are very vivid of glowing skylines, of a hail of arrows and ballistas and rocks and everything else that drove the Jewish defenders away from the walls so that the Roman legions can build ramps and get over into those towns and cities. And very quickly they were subdued. But the Greeks, the Romans, were not alone because the Chinese at the time were also developing artillery and used it on a massive scale to, in their internecine squabbling to take on cities and towns and, and move their armies around. So everyone was using artillery. And later on, the Chinese, of course, were using explosive as well. So you didn't want to be their enemy because their artillery was pretty sound. And their technology was ahead of everyone else's. It was, although you know, when you come across someone like Archimedes, the great mathematician and thinker, he was coming up with all sorts of plans as well. As early as 212 BC, it's always said that he invented this great uh, mirror system that could burn enemy ships at Syracuse, but uh, I, I doubt that ever happened. I mean, that's, that's on a sort of SDI strategic defence initiative level of being able to direct light and even Ronnie Reagan could get that to work <laughs> with their Star Wars program. Well, well exactly. So I think a, a, a polished bit of metal wasn't going to do it uh, for, for the Greeks, but it, it was a great idea. But it showed that people were thinking about different forms of artillery, different forms of weaponry. And the Greeks certainly pushed forward the idea of using fire weapons uh, at sea, for example, of using uh, flamethrowers. And that carried on into the Middle Ages as well with the, with the invention of Trump weapons, uh, of weapons that could fire flame 15, 20 feet, and the use of naphtha and wildfire pots. So it, things were developing all the time. And the ingredients for Greek fire, if anyone's thinking of making it, is, are pretty gruesome. I mean, it includes bitumen, sulphur, pitch pine, oil, 
uh, and spirit alcohol. So you wouldn't want that landing on your head. Yes, no, don't, don't try and make it at home. That's my top tip. Yes. And, and don't smoke a cigarette while you're doing it. Got that instruction, children? <laughs> Very good. We are a responsible podcast. Yes, I would have to check the box which says this is explicit. <laughs> The Vikings were known for their amazing ability to travel all over Europe and to attack places with large bodies of men uh, coming up rivers and travelling across seas. They got up the Seine to Paris, which in those days was a island city, the Ile de Cité, and attempted to assault the city there. Well, strangely, they had artillery as well. We don't think of the Vikings as being artillery people. We think of them as just leaping off their raiding boats and coming ashore. But they were well-travelled. They obviously went down the Volga and reached as far as Constantinople. They travelled all over the place. And so they had picked up the technology, as had everyone else in the rest of Europe. So they came with a large fleet, maybe of about 300 ships, uh, to West Francia, and went up the Seine. Uh, it, the Franks tried to block it, and there was a siege that lasted a couple of months. There was a fighting bishop called Goslin, all these great characters from that period. And there are, again, descriptions of the, the both sides firing ballistas and causing a great deal of damage. There's one description of three Vikings being taken out uh, by a very large arrow fired by a Frankish catapult and the description of them looking like birds on a spit. So you can see the level of violence, the, the, the level of artillery action going on. And th this, was, this was 9th century AD, so pretty early on for, for Europe. And then we have that great period of the Crusaders. In 1147, there is the Siege of Lisbon. Yes, and the English particularly brought their artillery along and fired, it's believed, 5,000 stones in 10 hours. I mean, a very heavy artillery bombardment. And it had an effect. This was to drive the Moors out. And, you know, the Greeks called their catapults wild asses because of the bucking action that they made. And you can imagine the level of activity... And you can also imagine that the uh, Crusaders, just as they did throughout history, just as artillerymen have always done, chalked or painted uh, slogans and uh, mottos, uh, both on their trebuchets and mangonels, uh, as they did on the stones that they were firing into the enemy. You, you always ended up with, with mangonels and trebuchets being called you know, devil's teeth or God's vengeance, that, that sort of thing. And like the bombs that were dropped on, on Hitler. This one's for you, Adolf. It, it, exactly. Yeah. It sort of, in a, in a, in a sense, humanises the conflict and gives an insight into the, the thinking of those taking part. Uh, then during the Third Crusade, Richard the Lionheart's crusade to the Holy Land, he, he assembled huge trebuchets uh, to attack the city of Acre that was was held by a Saracen garrison. Uh, Saladin did his best to break through, but never achieved it, and the garrison fell. And Richard the Lionheart executed that garrison and their families, uh, which didn't go down well. Has, hasn't gone down well throughout history, but that's what happened if you didn't surrender. And 100 years later, they were back. Well, that's the thing. 1291, you, you then get uh, the Sultan of Egypt attacking the Crusaders and the, the Crusaders holding out against this array of machinery, artillery, that were called black oxen because there were so many of them. And again, that sort of nodding action of, of the, the mangonels and trebuchets. And all the time, there wasn't just this artillery. There was also corps of engineers uh, undermining uh, slighting the walls of those towns and cities and fortresses that they came across. So it was a sort of twin-pronged attack, both above ground and underground. And a lot of effort went into it, both the mining and the artillery work. And these were big bits of kit, weren't they? The trebuchet, for example, and 
1304, at the Siege of Stirling, uh, it was quite a job to get all this stuff assembled. Oh, it took over 50 carpenters three months to put, put together uh, a large trebuchet. They were huge instruments of war, and they tended to be carried in pieces and then assembled there and then you know, on the battlefield. And you needed very skilled carpenters to ensure that they worked. I mean, making any sort of a counterweight a catapult or a torsion machine it took a lot of skill. And they didn't always throw stones and pitch. They had more exotic ammunition for their trebuchet, such as um, Henry V in 1418. Yes, he was firing dead animals into the water supply of Rouen. And that was common practice. We, we talked about drying out wells in our terrorist podcast, the idea that you terrorise a population or deny it food or deny it water. And so it wasn't just artillery, but you used artillery quite often to terrorise, to cow the enemy hiding behind their walls. So you weren't just trying to bring down the stones, bring down the edifice. It was the psychological effect of bombardment, and that carried on for centuries to come. And so dead animals in the water supply, dead humans in the water supply, or manure, anything that could, could psychologically disrupt what was going on in the city. And sometimes uh, even humans were flung over or, or, or were threatened. Hostages were threatened with being flung by a trebuchet or catapult over the walls into a city. Those would be the antecedents to those fellows who like to be put into a cannon and fired across a, a, um, at the fair, you know, fired across the fair playground. Well, I, I do remember when I mentioned this to you before, you did say, were they wearing streamers? <laughs> I, I, I think you should be a circus, a circus manager. I, I'd be much better at <laughs> siege, siege warfare <laughs> siege than man- circuses. Siege management, that's something to put on your CV. But, uh, or, or it's a bit like Commodus gluing wings onto people and throwing them off pillars in the Colosseum. <laughs> Yeah, I don't want to be associated with that. Lot. It's Thanks all so much. it's all entertainment, but yeah. so so this was go- this was going on all the time, and so you got the the, the and and you got the precursor to uh, chemical warfare in 1493. You got Pope Alexander the Sixth firing sulphur pots into the enemy into in, into into a town to try and cow them. So whether it was sulphur, naphtha, wildfire. Uh, or excrement, anything was used to to try and undermine, uh, including undermining, uh, to to bring down a city. So these mechanical methods of artillery bombardment were to be gradually replaced by the use of gunpowder. And the first use of guns uh, appears to be the siege of Cividale in Italy, with the Germans assaulting the city in 1331. And then we've got Edward III at the Battle of Cressy in 1346. Oh, my great hero, Edward III, the man we mentioned in uh, the Bloody Bites about uh, the longbow. And Edward III, although he used the longbow to great effect to to destroy the, the French army, he also had artillery. Some people say he had five guns there. Some people say he had up to 20. But they still had an effect. And... Again, it was the psychological effect. I don't think anyone had particularly thought it through because the longbow dominated the battlefield and dominated the battlefield for another 200 years. But just having guns there that could make a noise, uh, however inaccurate they were, whatever their, their actual physical impact, just the, the, the noise and the fury of them could make a difference. That's how Edward III used them. And in certainly if he'd have had to withdraw his men, his troops. The cannons wouldn't have been able to come with them. They would have lost them. No, they were incredibly cumbersome. And once more, it is this thing that the, the technology doesn't always get absorbed easily into an army. There were still trebuchets and catapults at the time, and no one quite know, knew how to use them in the same way that no one quite knew how to use the machine gun later on. That was viewed as an artillery piece. So the longbow was still dominant for ages after it, in the same way that the British Army didn't absorb uh, artillery because they concentrated on musketry 
later on. So we, we've always been quite late to the game when it comes to absorbing the technology and finding what tactics to use with it. Yes, although Henry V, so that's Agincourt, 1415, he had his artillery man within his troops called Nicholas Murbury, um, and his full title was Magister Operationum Ingenarium et Ganarium Ac Alarium Ordinationum. Go to the bottom of the Latin class. I know, I'm very good at that. <laughs> anyway, that was his man, and he was there... They tend to be quite a civilian setup, but uh, they were there to do what they could on the on the on the artillery side. Though, really, it was a very small feature of their forces. It, it was a small feature, and and Henry V used it to bombard Harfleur. It's believed he had about twelve great guns. I don't know how great they were, but he certainly didn't have them at Agincourt. He probably left them behind at Harfleur. Once they were inside, just used them to, to cover the walls, basically, uh, cover the approaches to, to the town. But they, they were very immobile. They were very difficult, very difficult, very cumbersome to transport. So I don't think a lot of commanders really wanted them around for quite a long time. And they were cast iron, so they were very dangerous to use and could explode at any time. And... Of course, James II of Scotland eventually managed to blow himself up at the Siege of Roxburgh in 1460. The arrival of field artillery is put down to a man called John Zicker, who, field artillery being guns that really can be moved around the battlefield. In the Hussite War of 1419 to 1424, he had small guns on carts, which were called Wagenberg which he could move around the battlefield and use against the infantry. But as I pointed out, this didn't really travel to other armies. You know, other armies were still set in this sort of giant siege gun mode of operating. And the idea of mobility, of carrying guns on the battlefield, took a long time to take hold. And, and it's really the large cannon that caught the imagination that were really used uh, by commanders. Yeah, so for instance, at the same time as John Zitka was operating roughly in 1453, the Turks um, managed to lay siege and take Constantinople. And they used many guns, including what they called monster pieces. And some of these monster pieces were still in use several hundred years later. In fact, in 1807, a £700 stone cut the British Admiral Sir J.T. Duckworth, Sir J.T. Duckworth's main mast in half. And I mean, £700, if you imagine that being lobbed by a mortar, that's like the weight of my old Harley Davidson. Yeah, well, well, well Mehmet was a big artillery man, and, and so a lot of those guns, they, they could never be made again. And so they, they sat around as museum pieces and then were hauled out to be used in conflict. And you, you, you see the size of the cannons that we use in the, in the next century, I mean, 1565, when Suleiman the Magnificent was invading everywhere from Rhodes to Malta. He used massive cannon throwing basilisk balls at the walls of, of cities and towns that he wanted to take. So the 17th to 19th century, gunpowder and gunnery and cannons were beginning to have a major impact on the battlefield. And Gustavus Adolphus, the king of Sweden, was credited with the first true use of battlefield artillery at the Battle of Breitenfeld in 1631 and uh, in 1632, the Battle of Lech, where he achieved sort of local superiority with his handiness with guns. He was actually killed later on that year at another battle, but this had set the pace. In those days, the artillery wasn't separate. It was just distributed amongst the other troops, the infantry, and it was often manned and owned by civilians who were under contract to kings and princes. So the gunners and the transport and the master gunner would have the guns and they would produce them for the battle. If the princes in charge of the battle were sensible, they would put some men around the guns to protect them and also to stop them from running away if things got a bit hot. And this practice went on 
certainly for some countries, until the 1780s. Yeah, it was a very slow evolution on, on the way that artillery was absorbed into the battlefield. But you did start getting more mobility. You started getting lighter weapons and you got better training. And they were using, uh, on the battlefield, four-pounder guns. Maybe the heaviest would be 12-pounders, but, I mean, a four-pound shot is what came out of the cannon. And even a 12-pounder even a only had a, a calibre of about three inches, so th- these were s- pretty small guns. Our great military genius of the early 1700s was the Duke of Marlborough, fighting various battles such as Blenheim and Oudenard. And in 1704, he had... 66 cannon at the Battle of Blenheim. By 1706, he had 100 pieces and 11,000 men, but his tactics often involved quick manoeuvre and guns just couldn't keep up. Artillery could not keep up with infantry and particularly with the cavalry. Although by 1716, these civilians who were in charge of the guns had been transformed into the Royal Regiment of Artillery. Um, so it all came under a, a new setup. Things were definitely professionalising, and you saw this across Europe, that, that people were beginning to see that guns had a role. So you get the professionalisation, you get them appearing more on the battlefield. But with Marlborough, it was still close action, close firing with muskets, and, and that kept a hold for another hundred years really in terms of how the British used artillery it was always seen as a sort of adjunct to an addition to what was going on with the musketry and the and the squares the formations of infantry and the guns were powerful but they just weren't maneuverable enough at that time and so his exploiting of advantage would be the use of his cavalry that was his thing really wasn't it yes and it really took Frederick the Great to to push it forward, to move it forward, and to actually use cannon. I mean, he was a great cavalry man. I mean, he believed in cavalry and exploitation of that. But once you you had countermeasures to cavalry, such as stakes in the ground and musketeers behind that, then you had to find a way to punch holes in it. And and this is what Frederick the Great was always looking for, looking for the advantage. Yes, yeah, so early on in his campaigns with his great cavalry general Seidelitz, um, it was manoeuvre. But by 1759, the horse artillery had been introduced. And by 1760, the enemy were flatly defeated by artillery success on the battlefield in that they couldn't reform. It's, you, you saw this move and that this was noticed by the French who began to absorb those lessons into their tactics, the way they sent their army forward. Uh, it's, it's interesting that, that so many of these generals started, when they were on the march, started put, putting their cannon at the front so they could go into action quickly. Uh, and that was the advantage of having, having horse artillery, that they could actually go to the flanks fast, that they could position themselves. Uh, these were all the changes that were coming in. And the French general, Griboval, in the 1760s, he really put it down on paper and made the changes in the French forces that allowed Napoleon, the great artillery general, to adopt successful use of artillery in the Napoleonic Wars. It was the idea of of punching through and concentrating force and then exploiting it with your cavalry. So Napoleon absorbed those lessons. And there was, of course, the, the, the development of grape shot, canister shot, and eventually shells with shrapnel. So that allowed your artillerymen to really play a significant role on the battlefield. And as the French didn't have the great musketry skills that the British army had, they tended to need to rely more on their artillery. Right, so Napoleon appears on the scene and... As an artillery officer, he has a reputation for handling his infantry without much care, which is a polite way of saying he didn't mind getting his infantry killed and tended to rely on the mobility and tactics of his artillery to win the day. So effectively they would punch the holes and then the infantry would be sent in to mop up if it was successful. So the way he would, uh, he would describe it, to paraphrase, would be to bring unexpected artillery fire 
surprise the enemy and win the battle. But high skill is required. You have to have your horse artillery galloping right to the front. You've got to be able to deploy them. And then, as Jamie mentioned, you use case shot against the enemy troops to blow a hole and then in go the infantry. That's what had been done up to Waterloo. And you can see the difference in the approach between the French and, and the Brits at Waterloo simply by the number of cannon involved. So you, you can see the difference there. But, but of course, because Napoleon wasn't on the battlefield that much, he didn't manage to concentrate the force that uh, he needed to to punch a hole through the British infantry. And the British infantry were on the reverse slope. Uh, so Wellington, at least, wanted to protect his infantry squares against French artillery, which he did very successfully. Funny enough that the Prussians under Blücher really didn't care about their infantry. I mean, he had his his Prussian formations, infantry formations, standing out in the field, being taken down remorselessly by French cannon blasts. So it, that was the difference between the two, two commanders, really. Then there was the fact that the British... Uh, had on the ridge the cannons of the Royal Artillery and their guns used grape shot and canister shot to take out the French cavalry that were charging up in their thousands. And the French cavalry forgot to bring nails along and didn't spike those guns. So not only were they decimated by the cannons and the artillerymen then ran back into the British squares for, for protection and then came out again when the French retreated. But the French cavalry, what was left of them, were then faced with these serried ranks, the, the British squares of infantry. So they were in an impossible situation. And if you want to know more about the Battle of Waterloo, we are doing a specific episode with Hugh MacDonald Buchanan in a few months' time, where you'll be able to learn all about that vital battle. After the Battle of Waterloo, the Napoleonic Wars were over and there was a period of so-called peace. You then get almost a century of stasis. Things are just frozen. Things don't develop. Military thinking doesn't particularly develop. Although towards the end of the century, you get two events. You get uh, the American Civil War, where trenches are dug where barbed wire is used, where artillery, in effect, loses its effect because people are keeping their heads down. It's very difficult to, to, for artillery to, to gain the advantage that it might have gained before. No one, of course, took the lessons from that into the next century and the Great War. No one sort of thought, oh, maybe artillery won't have the effect that we think it's going to have. So... You got that, whether it was the battles of Antietam or Gettysburg. You know, it was really, again, the poor bloody infantry who, who, who were massacred. Gettysburg, the Confederate bombardment, 3rd of July, 1863. Samuel Wilkerson writes his dispatch beside the body of his son, Lieutenant Bayard Wilkerson, killed in the first day's fighting. Samuel Wilkerson. Gettysburg. For 35 miles southwest of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, was the turning point of the Civil War. After three days' battle, the Confederate Army, which had invaded the North under General Robert E. Lee, was forced to withdraw. About 23,000 Northern troops fell and 20,000 Southerners. Who can write the history of a battle whose eyes are immovably fastened upon a central figure of transcendingly absorbing interest? the dead body of an oldest-born, crushed by a shell in a position where a battery should never have been sent, and abandoned to death in a building where surgeons dared not to stay. For such details as I have the heart for. The battle commenced at daylight, on the side of the horseshoe position, exactly opposite to that which Ewell had sworn to crush through. Musketry preceded the rising of the sun. A thick wood veiled this fight, but out of the leafy darkness arose the smoke and the surging and swelling of the fire. Suddenly, at about ten in the forenoon, the firing on the east side and everywhere about our lines ceased. A silence of deep sleep fell upon the field of battle. Our army cooked, ate and slumbered. 
The rebel army moved 120 guns to the west and massed there Longstreet's Court and Hill's Court to hurl them upon the really weakest point of our entire position. 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock. In the shadow cast by the tiny farmhouse, 16 by 20, where General Meade had made his headquarters, lay wearied staff officers and tired reporters. There was not wanting to the peacefulness of the scene, the singing of a bird, which had a nest in a peach tree within the tiny yard of the whitewashed cottage. In the midst of its warbling, a shell screamed over the house, instantly followed by another and another, and in a movement the air was full of the most complete artillery prelude to an infantry battle that was ever exhibited. Every size and form of shell known to British and to American gunnery shrieked, moaned, whirled, whistled, and wrathfully fluttered over our ground. Through the midst of the storm and screaming of exploding shells, an ambulance, driven by its frenzied conductor at full speed, presented to us all the marvellous spectacle of a horse going rapidly on three legs. A hinder one had been shot off at the hock. During this fire, the houses at twenty and thirty feet distant were receiving their death, and soldiers in federal blue were torn to pieces in the road and died with the peculiar yells that blend the extorted cry of pain with horror and despair. Not an orderly, not an ambulance, not a straggler was to be seen upon the plain swept by the tempest of orchestral death thirty minutes after it commenced. Yeah, I mean, Lee's, Lee's infantry, when they went into the assault, were basically stopped, having prepared the ground and thinking it was going to be uh, an assault that could be carried through. They were stopped by the Union infantry and artillery on the other side, who were relatively unaffected. Yes, once you were dug in, it was difficult to, to, to get you out of that position. You could see that in the siege of Paris in 1870. There were the Prussians who developed these vast siege guns. I mean, in the, in the Great Exhibition of Paris in 1867, Krupp was showing off a 50-ton gun that could fire a 250-pound shell. But if you look at the effect of Prussian artillery during the siege of Paris. I think they fired something like 12,000 shells and only a few hundred people were killed. In fact, it became a tourist attraction. People went out over the bridges to watch the left bank being hit by shells. But these shells, of course, didn't have what we call modern high explosive. They were still filled with, with black powder. And so the uh, craters they left were only about two feet deep. I mean, there, it, was, it, it wasn't a huge impact. The bite of Big Bertha was not as great as the bark. How about that? Yes, it really took the, 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 the next century to really make an impact. So before we get to the 20th century, even though there was a period of stasis in the 19th century, there were technological developments. So, for instance, the, the quick-firing field gun before you had cannon and every time you fired it, it lurched back and the men had to reposition it and get out of the way. Once they'd had a recall mechanism, they could sit behind the gun and pull the lanyard all day long and it would fire and it wouldn't sort of roll back over them. Smokeless powder, timed fuses, shields to protect the men using the gun so they could get right up close in combat and have some protection from shrapnel and uh, rifle fire. Smokeless ammunition made a huge impact. I mean, you saw that uh, really in, in, in the thinking of Bloch and, and what would happen uh, later on in the Great War. You, know, you, you saw the invention of the machine gun with the Gatling gun and the Maxim gun, but the military did not absorb these lessons and things like the machine gun were just viewed as another artillery piece uh, maybe a rapid-firing artillery piece, but an art artillery piece nonetheless. It wasn't seen as a, as a, a, as a unit weapon uh, for the infantry. And uh, with the quick-firing gun, you needed to be able to carry a lot more ammunition, so that in itself became a logistical problem, especially as your artillery was right up at the front. With the machine gun, you can see the military thinking of, 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 the, of the senior officers who thought that it would undermine sharpshooting skills, that it would undermine the, 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 the rifle accuracy. Which it, did, which it did, but it didn't matter because they still managed to splatter the battlefield with bullets and they didn't have to be that accurate. 
No, they, they saw it, they, certainly with the machine gun, they saw it as useful against natives overseas in colonial operations, but they, they never really thought it through, the impact on the battlefield. In the same way that the, the artillery, it, it, it hadn't, although it had found its place in the 19th century, by the 20th century, again, with high explosives, people didn't really see the full impact or how to fully integrate it into combined arms operations. This episode is about artillery on land, but we can't go through the whole thing without mentioning naval gunnery, Jamie. Yeah, we're not going to spend too long talking about ships fighting ships, but it's worth looking at how things developed there and how tactics developed and the, the, the use of broadsides. And the English were the first to use naval broadsides because we employed it uh, during the Spanish Armada of 1588. We had different tactics. We wanted to make the Spanish ships run on, sometimes run on to reefs and shoals. Um, and the, the Spanish tended to be infantry heavy on their ships and, and wanted to grapple with the English. Uh, we avoided that and just fired broadsides and, and, and moved away. No ships were actually sunk during that initial action as we drove the Spanish onwards. So even though it had an effect, it, it just kept the Spanish running on. Oh, it effectively spat them out of the channel. It, it, it spat them out of the channel, got them across to the other side, then fire ships drove them on. And you started getting, uh, the, with the Battle of Graveline, you started getting an impact of, of English ships getting closer and firing broadsides. But they ran out of ammo and, and gunpowder pretty quickly. So we had to give up that particular fight. And by then, the, the Armada was heading up the coast and towards the storms of Scotland and Ireland. And, and that's what did for them in the end. It, it wasn't the battle itself. But you can see the sort of nascent, the beginnings of of naval bombardment. And also, also you started getting the beginnings of the Navy supporting land operations as well. So as you move through into the following centuries, you get cannons being more powerful and being used in blockade. And once they're used in blockade, they're also used in sieges as well. Such as the siege of Copenhagen in 1807. Yes, and, and, and th there was a use not just of, of cannon by that stage, you also had the Congreve rocket. So you had 300 incendiary rockets fired into the city. And that, that is what ultimately uh, caused the Danes to, to sue for peace. It was seeing their houses being set on fire. The actual direct shot from cannon were having less effect, but it was fire rockets that really uh, sort of turned the day in favour of, of, of the Brits. And over in America, the siege of Baltimore. Yes, the, the, the Americans didn't sue for peace at that stage. They didn't have to because they just held out. And you had 55 ships under Cochrane uh, besieging Baltimore and particularly pounding Fort McHenry. Uh, they, they fired 1,500 cannonballs at, at this uh, pentangle fort. But because of the thickness of the walls, because of the defenders, uh, they, they didn't give, give way. But again, Congreve rockets were fired. And, and, and that is what is mentioned, were the Congreve rockets fired from HMS Erebus, the, 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 the rocket ship that, that the Brits were using in that campaign. And you're about to read out some lines from the Star Spangled Banner. I hope this doesn't rid us of all our American followers of this podcast, so I'll do my best. This is the third verse of the Star-Spangled Banner. And the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in the air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. There you go. And, and rockets, again, were used in another century, the following century, during the Normandy landings, because uh, we used rockets fired in salvos from uh, landing ships, landing craft, tanks to hit German positions. So the, 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 those rockets were high explosive, carried seven kilogram warheads. But again, rockets were being used um, by naval forces and became quite useful. And 
more recently, in the Falklands War, the Navy were very much uh, used as uh, seaborne artillery to help the troops. Certainly, when, when British troops were assaulting uh, the hills around uh, Port Stanley, Tumbledown, Longdon, Mount Harriet, Two Sisters, all those hills, the, 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 the positions were softened up by Navy ships such as HMS Glamorgan which was then hit by an ex-missile fired from the land. But nevertheless, they, they made a, a, a direct contribution and, again, evoked the sort of activity that, that the, the Navy provided during the Normandy landings in '44. There, there, there was a huge emphasis on naval bombardment of softening up the enemy. And even today, there's still a an option that the Navy have of assisting troops on the ground with artillery support. Indeed. I mean, th there's the advanced gun system that BAE systems produced for the Zumwalt-class destroyer uh, in the US Navy. Not many were bought, but at least it's a six-inch gun that can fire um, extended-range ammunition with, with terminal guidance to a range of over 80 miles. Uh, so you've got this, this sort of idea of fire support from the sea that continues to this day. And it, it's a long way from the, 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 the impact, obviously, of, of broadsides and cannon on something like HMS Victory at, at Trafalgar. If you look at Trafalgar, how Victory went to the stern of Ray Dutab, the French ship, and fired a broadside and killed 400 sailors in that one broadside. You know, the technology has moved on, but the need for good gunnery and effective gunnery practices remains true to this day. With the arrival of the 20th century and the horror is really with us. It is, because if you think of the Great War, you think really of the machine gun and the howitzer, you know, the, the, the terrible damage that, that both those things wreaked in, in, in both world wars. And how, again, the tactics, certainly in the First World War, hadn't changed in Victorian times. So people were always going to be chewed up at a high rate because no one had ever thought of how to counter the machine gun and how to counter the howitzer. Or, or they believed they had too much faith in the howitzer in the same way that the Prussians believed the howitzer could uh, cause Paris to fall more quickly than it actually did. And the psychological effect of both those weapons was, was, was massive, of course. Yes, I mean, there were some extraordinary examples of, of what happens and the difference in the use of guns, of howitzers, in 1915 to 1916. Yes, the the Battle of Luce, you had the beginnings, you had just over 100 guns being used um, by the Brits and that. By a year later, you had over 400 guns being used. And the idea of mass barrage, you know, the idea of creeping barrages. Uh, and once more, you see that the Russians haven't learnt that lesson, that creeping barrages don't always get you where you want to be. You know, the, the, the Brits thought that two things. First of all, that the barrages would chew up the barbed wire entanglements, and secondly, that it would decimate the Germans in their positions. But just like the American Civil War, people survived the bombardment. The, the Germans dug deep. They had encasements. They had pillboxes. They had uh, deep foundation, concrete-lined uh, shelters, and they could come out and man their machine guns as soon as the bombardment was over. So once more, you had this, this problem of too much faith being put in an individual weapon system. Yeah, and there were some staggering figures, of course. Many people have talked about it, but that at the Battle of Verdun, one million shells were fired on the French. And the French lost a lot of men, ultimately, in those fights, as, as did the Germans. But it... Its effect really was more profound than the immediate battle because I think the effect was political and has had long-term ramifications for the whole of France uh, to this day. 
You know, this, this idea of not trusting the establishment, of not trusting the central authorities, that, that, that still lingers. And then by the start of World War II, and combined operations was very much the word, particularly for the Germans. It, it, it was. And artillery, although it was important, you started getting other elements in play. You started getting ground attack, you know, combat air support, and you had the heavy bombers as well coming into play, which, which hadn't existed in the First World War. So uh, there were new machines. There was also the tank, of course, although it had come in at the Battle of Combray and other battles in, in a very basic form in World War I. It, these new weapon systems didn't really come to the fore until the Second World War. So combined arms, concentrating force, giving the cavalry a, a, a dimension of steel in the form of tracked vehicles and mobile artillery, all these things started coming in. Punching a hole and then exploiting. Indeed. There was obviously a, a huge contribution made by naval bombardment in taking out German pillboxes of, of accurate gunfire. And there were cases of, of aircraft, uh, British and American aircraft, being taken down by naval gunfire, by being hit by shells being fired from Allied battleships and cruisers. It, it was very heavy fire. But the actual bomber formations that were coming over as well had a, had a vast impact and, and had a greater weight of ordnance they could deliver straight onto the targets than the naval gunfire. So we've come full circle, Jamie, and we're now back to today. What's going on with artillery? Well, as Ukraine has shown, artillery still has a role, still has its place. On its own, it's not enough, but it can certainly help the infantry. It can certainly help degrade the defences of the enemy and allow your own forces to push forward. So what is going to change in the future are such things as precision, because you have terminal guidance, laser guidance in things such as the Excalibur shell that the Americans use. So you can have GPS-guided shells, you can have laser-guided shells, all these things that have come into play. So how does that work? So it's the shell with little fins on it that... Um move do they say so it can, sort of it, it, can glide. Bleed, it, it can bleed air through 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 various ducts and different designs have come along you and and also you have rocket assisted shells so uh, there are lots of changes and guidance can come from drones it can come from satellites i mean a, a lot of these things uh, are coming into the modern battlefield so precision has definitely changed and what was once quite a blunt instrument or just an explosive instrument is now a precision kill weapon well and that adds uh, add to that the fact that you can see where the enemy are yes the lethality has has definitely changed in the same way that just uh, hydra rockets just just basic rockets that could be fired unguided rockets that were fitted to attack helicopters can now be fitted with laser guidance as well. So everything becomes a pinpoint precision munition rather than just a general scatter effect. Um, rocketry has become far more precise. If you take something like the Russian Katusha rocket from the Second World War, yeah, it could fire uh, 40 rockets from a single launcher uh, and you had four launcher vehicles in, in, in one battery, and it could lay down four tonnes of, 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 of fire across 400,000 square metres. But it was very imprecise. Now you have rockets like the HIMARS that can take out individual targets at 50 miles range. So it's, it's precision. The range has improved. I mean, whether it's the range of howitzers or rockets, the rate of fire has improved. You see, you can get um, howitzers automatically loaded in, in self-propelled platforms that can fire 10 rounds a minute. So that has changed enormously as well. The mobility has changed. All these things have added to 
the 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 use of artillery the 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 utility of artillery on on the modern battlefield and it certainly hasn't seen its last days yet whereas the tank well the writing might just be on the wall in the future so the next phase in ukraine for artillery what do you see happening there well, I see the Ukrainians using it more and it will be going ahead with tank formations and, and helping to take strong points out. Um, and the, 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 I don't think the Ukrainians will use uh, creeping barrages like the Russians. They will use counter-battery fire and they will move forward because they have the ability to move forward and manoeuvre. So they will want to keep it a manoeuvre campaign and not be bogged down. And that is what armies will seek in the future. It, 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 you'll see shoot-and-scoot missions. You will see uh, smaller formations having a lot more power. And if you look at this, what is coming down the line, if you take uh, the new weapons, the new rockets that could be fitted to the multiple launch rocket system or the high-mobility artillery rocket system that the Lockheed Martin produced, you now have the precision strike missile coming along. Four can be carried on a chassis and they can have a range of 300 miles. So the range, the precision, the, 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 the lethality of these weapon systems is going to increase and that's going to help whichever side has those weapons. But the rockets uh, must be more expensive than uh, using shells. Uh, uh, but the howitzer towed artillery pieces are more vulnerable is that the problem they're, they're certainly more vulnerable and they and they don't have the range of the rocket systems uh, rocket systems have I'm, I'm loath to say transform a situation because you never know what's around the corner but it, it certainly has allowed the ukrainians to take out and and confuse the russians um, by taking out uh, their key logistics centres, their hubs, and being so linear, being so centralised, the Russians, at least at the moment, don't have anything to provide a countermeasure to that. I mean, they're they're pretty lost. I mean, if you're losing your commanders, if you're losing your logistics hubs, if you're losing your ammo depots, you're in trouble. You cannot sustain the campaign they wanted to sustain, which was this this creeping artillery barrage um, with, without any thought of, of what else they can use, which is one of the reasons they're using uh, caliber cruise missiles and other cruise missiles to take out civilian infrastructure. It's really lashing out because they're not achieving so much on the battlefield. Very good, Jamie. Well, our, our postscript is going to be a little chat on superguns, exotic superguns. Well, I thought it'd be worth looking at them because it, once more it shows how military leaders or dictators can put their faith in super weapons or believe there's such a thing as a, a magic bullet, a miracle weapon. And very rarely there is. Usually it's just clutching at straws. So in the Second World War, you got the Nazis developing the V3, uh, a, a super cannon that they were going to install near Calais to fire rounds 100 miles towards London. And they thought, just like the V2 and the V1, that this was going to change the course of the war. But once Bomber Command had taken out the components in Essen and elsewhere where it was being fabricated, um, uh, there, there was no chance of, of, of it ever being put into operation. But And the V weapons, that was vengeance, wasn't it? It was, yes, a, it was were, a lashing out weapon. It right? was a lashing out weapon, uh, just as the Russians are lashing out in, in Ukraine today. Uh, lashing out at the rest of the world it, it, it's it's often a last resort and it's often because you have no real answer to the challenges you're facing on the battlefield and the imminent defeat that you're facing so that knowledge that idea of the super gun wasn't killed by the second world war because it was then taken up later on by people such as dr gerald bull 
who came up with the idea of of the harp gun and this 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 was seen as a way of launching objects into space launching small satellites into space but he was also a howitzer developer as well so it was the, there was this twin idea of coming up again with a super gun but also coming up with a cheap way of launching things into space so they were building uh, harp components in the caribbean near B- mcgill university in the United States. So there, there was this work going on, but th- that was killed off. Funding uh, was slashed. But Gerald Bull went on with his idea and came up with this idea of Project Babylon. And he was planning to install this 151-foot uh, super cannon um, in Iraq for Saddam Hussein. And he was warned not to do it. Eventually, in 1990, uh, he was assassinated in Belgium, and that was the end of his dream. So it just shows you can live by the large gun and be killed by a small one. So there, there's always uh, the countermeasure just round the corner, and that's why being wedded to one weapon is never a good idea. Excellent. OK. Well, that's a pretty comprehensive run-through on artillery. One last thing, Jamie. Do you know what soldiers say on the radio if they haven't heard what the other person has said to them? Nope. They say... Say again, don't they? Exactly. They don't say repeat. Why is that? Tell me. It's because if you say repeat down the radio, the artillery send the same load of shells over that they've just sent previously. And so they may well end up on your head. So you never use the word repeat on an army radio because you might end up with a load of shells on your head. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton, and with my old friend James Jackson, this has been Bloody Violent History. Please check our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com, and you can email me on talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. Thank you, and good luck. Thank you.